How can we take inspiration from our love for animals to protect wildlife and change the world? How can we take action and start making changes in our lives? What if we measured success based on happiness and the health of communities? Stephanie Feldstein leads the Center for Biological Diversity's work to highlight and address threats to endangered species and wild places from runaway human population growth and overconsumption. Previously, Stephanie worked for Change.org, where she helped hundreds of people start and win online campaigns to protect wildlife. She has years of experience in organizing outreach and communications and is the author of The Animal Lover's Guide to Changing the World and a series aimed at young adults, Take Action, Save Life on Earth. Stephanie Feldstein, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So you're a longtime champion of animals as well as the Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. So this is something that you've dedicated your life to, really. And we love that in your book, The Animal Lover's Guide to the Changing World, you help people of all ages assimilate some of these things and how they can translate their love of animals to love of the planet and so many other things. So just set up the passage you'll be sharing with us. Yes, my approach to activism, which is first and foremost, just not being ashamed about how much you love animals and love the natural world and bringing that into your activism in any way you can and really starting off where you are. So this opening passage, it really gives a little bit of a background of when I first started to realize how much I can do and also just how intertwined our lives are with animals. And that really reflects in how much we can do and how important it is for us to take action. I've loved animals as long as I can remember, even longer from what I've been told. I still remember when I figured out where the fur in fur coats came from and refused to let anyone in my family leave the house wearing anything too hairy. I was five years old and protested the hall closet until the suspect coats were banished. I remember when I picked up a book about how farmed animals were treated and understood for the first time how much animals suffered to put food on my plate. I was 16 years old and stopped eating meat. Much to the chagrin of my parents, my friends' parents, servers in restaurants, and anyone else faced with helping me figure out what I could make into a meal. Veggie burgers weren't as easy to find back then. As I learned what animals went through for our food, clothes, comfort, and entertainment, I realized there was a lot I could do, even as a kid, to make the world a better place for them. And that mattered because their existence made the world a better place for me too. Animal lovers come in all shapes, sizes, and personalities. We may feel compelled to speak out, but not if it means fake blood or naked protest. That's okay. Humans are constantly interacting with animals, whether we're aware of it or not. From the 80 million or so households with companion animals, to the wildlife who live outside our doorsteps, to the decisions we make every time we sit down to eat. There's no shortage of ways to help them, and they need us to help in any way we can. There is no us versus them. All kids have that moment in life when they learn for the first time that humans are mammals, just like their Labrador retriever or guinea pig or their favorite Seth Lion. For many kids, this bit of knowledge is mind-blowing because by the time we learn this, we've been functional humans for a while, getting food at the grocery store, using electronics, and putting our shoes on the right feet before we tie them. Human society has come a long way in severing our connection with other animals, and that's a huge problem. Not only do animals make our lives richer in countless ways, but the way we treat animals and the environment that animals, including humans, rely on comes back to bite us. I don't mean karmic retribution, so I wouldn't discount the possibility. I mean that our actions boomerang at us in very direct ways. When we pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, polar bears aren't the only ones seeing their homes and food disappear. Climate change has already forced human communities to move and is changing the face of agriculture. When we destroy habitat, 
We destroy the natural systems that filter water, create oxygen, provide food, and give us medicines derived from plants like quinine, morphine, codeine, and anti-cancer drugs. When we subject animals to cruelty, we begin to accept being cruel to each other. Most importantly, we'd never want to replace the happiness of someone we love with suffering. There's no question that animals experience both pain and pleasure. Maybe it's not exactly the way humans do, but different species naturally have different ways they prefer to live their lives. Rolling around on dead things isn't my cup of tea, but the joy it gives my dog is undeniable. Other animals deserve to live their lives with as much pleasure and as little pain as we strive for in our own. There is one very significant way we're different from other animals. We've caused more devastation to the planet and other species, wild and domestic, than any other animal in history. We're also more capable than most other species of helping other animals live happily ever after whether it's stopping animal abuse or simply getting out of the way. We created this mess and it's up to us to clean it up for their sake and ours. It's so to the point. And what's lovely about this kind of animal activism, which is also campaigning for our own health, it's that you can be effective while doing just your daily habits, changing them. And multiple things can be addressed by even just changing your diet. And then there's other things with the fast fashion, but those simple changes address several issues. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty much everything we do in our life, from the moment we wake up and take a shower, we're using water that's shared resources. We're using energy that for most of us, unfortunately, still comes from fossil fuels. We are making decisions about what we eat. We're making purchases that have an impact on the planet and on other animals based on where they came from and what they're made of. There are so many entry points for people to take action and start making changes in their own lives. And that's really important for people to start with what feels right to you. That's a great way to start getting involved in this. You don't have to go from feeling like you're doing nothing to suddenly leading massive protests of thousands of people. If you're able to do that, then great. But that's not going to be for everybody. But we can still all get involved and make a difference in meaningful ways. And on this issue of animal agriculture, it's very inefficient that it uses way more land, kills the soil. Oil, in turn causes health problems and us and cancers and these kind of things, which is all scientifically proven now that we see the increases in these diseases. So can you take apart what's the problem with animal agriculture? Well, as you said, a big part of it is the inefficiency. And just about any environmental metric that you look at, it's one of the leading problems. It's one of the leading causes behind this environmental destruction. We see land being cleared for crops that are grown to feed them. And it takes way more crops to get a calorie of meat than it does to feed those crops directly to humans to get the same caloric benefit. And so we see forests being cleared, grasslands being destroyed to grow these crops and to provide grazing land for animals. So immediately we're destroying wildlife habitat there which is the biggest threat to biodiversity on the planet, as well as releasing carbon dioxide into the air and getting rid of these much needed carbon sinks that could be pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. You get that double hit when you destroy wildlife habitat because you're releasing the carbon and you're leaving the carbon sink. And then growing the crops for animals requires a lot of inputs, a lot of water. There's a lot of energy that goes into it. Most crops that are grown for animals are currently monocultures, and they're using a huge amount of pesticides, which is devastating, not just for wildlife, but also it's really harmful for the workers as well, who are exposed to these pesticides every single day. Then you have animals, especially when we look at ruminants, they have these digestive systems that emit a lot of methane into the atmosphere, which is accelerating the climate crisis. 
there are a lot of antibiotics used on animals, both to promote rapid unnatural growth, as well as to prevent disease because they're kept in these really unhygienic conditions in factory farms. And that's leading to antibiotic resistance, which is a major threat to world health right now. And then even when you get to the end of the animal's life, you're looking at slaughterhouses, which create a lot of waste, a lot of water pollution. And there's just a lot of issues that come out of that that affect, again, wildlife and the surrounding communities of these different slaughterhouses throughout this process. There are newer studies talking about the impact of eating too much meat and dairy on human health and the benefits of eating plant-based diets. And we also know that working in factory farms and slaughterhouses are among the most dangerous jobs in the country. Also, there's the cruelty to the animals themselves when we're talking about the domesticated animals and how they're treated in factory farms before slaughter. So really not just the environment, but for animals and people as well, animal agriculture just has such a massive impact and such an outsized impact compared to any other kind of agriculture. Indeed. I don't think that we'll ever become a vegan planet. You're never going to convince the whole world, right? But there is a more cooperative and respectful way for those who will continue to eat meat to have this kind of partnership, whether it's cattle, they can actually graze the grass, which you say is a carbon sink, so that instead of emitting this methane, that this can be part of a more circular process that draws down the carbon. Yeah, one of the really important things to keep in mind with that, because there's a lot of excitement now around this concept of regenerative grazing. And regenerative agriculture is, is great in theory, right? It's all about changing, as you said, the way that we produce food so that it's more in harmony with ecosystems, so that it's using less water, it's storing carbon in soils, it's promoting biodiversity, it's increasing soil health overall, it's integrating animals into these diversified systems. It's an excellent theory, but what we're seeing in practice is, first of all, being co-opted a lot by corporations now, where they might have one farmer who stopped using one pesticide and they're like, now all of our food is regenerative and it's just not. So there's a long way that we need to go in terms of really having a shared understanding and accountability for what we're talking about with regenerative. But the other piece with grazing that's really important is to understand the scale of the industry right now. And even under these absolutely best practices that we can have, we need to massively reduce the amount of meat and dairy that's being produced and consumed. There was a study that came out of Harvard that looked at if we converted all of the beef supply in the United States to an entirely grass-fed system, current pasture land could only support 27% maximum of the amount of beef that we produce now. And even with that, overall methane emissions would still increase because when you're going straight to grass feeding, cattle have to be kept on the land longer. It takes them longer to grow. You need larger herds. There are trade-offs. So if we don't keep in mind that kind of North Star of reducing meat and dairy consumption, what we're going to wind up with is devastating impacts on biodiversity because cattle are an invasive species and we can't just put them out on the land. When you see cattle out grazing, it seems very idyllic, but it is not ideal for the wildlife who share that habitat. Cattle will trample burrows. They tend to congregate around sensitive habitats, around streams, which is really devastating for the wildlife that rely on that. There are a lot of conflicts between ranchers and wildlife. So we really just need to keep in mind that while there are better and worse ways to raise animals for meat and dairy, 
that we really need to pay close attention to that picture of biodiversity and to that impact of the industry as a whole at the size that it is. I don't think we're really meant to be carnivores. There's some different debate on this, but they say with our digestive system that it's more adapted to a plant-based diet. But yes, infrequent eating of meat is best for the planet, best for our bodies. And I know a part of your work also focuses on population and rethinking of cities and the transformation now and the things that we need to do. So So as you think about this, we're living in the century of the cities and much of the drive for change takes place within cities, but they also consume 75% of the world's natural resources or 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So in your reflections on this, what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource waste management, food pollution? That's an excellent question. And in many ways, cities are preferable in terms of like where people live, because on a per capita rate, usually people who live in cities have a lower environmental footprint. A big one, of course, is going to be energy. We need to immediately transition off of fossil fuel and shift to renewable energy. And cities have so much potential for distributed energy, but cities are a great place where we should have solar on every rooftop. We should be covering parking lots, for example, in solar panel covers. So all of that can draw in energy and there are benefits to that as well. Like when you think about the parking lots for providing more shade, which is really good as temperatures. Another big piece of it is going to be transportation. And that means making cities more walkable, providing more public transportation, making it easier for people to have electric vehicles, so more charging stations. And then to briefly touch on food, there are a million different things cities can do in terms of helping to promote plant-based eating and make plant-based food more widely available to people. Governments actually spend a lot of money on food. They buy a lot of food for their cafeterias. They're often involved in school purchasing and that sort of thing. And by changing their purchasing policies to focus more on plant-based options. Again, we're not talking about a fully vegan menu. It's just one where there are actually more vegan options where people can make the sustainable choice there. And as you were saying, where meat isn't necessarily the center of every meal, that maybe it's used more as a condiment, or maybe the default on menus is having be vegetarian, and then people can add in meat. So supporting community gardens and urban gardening and regional food hubs and all that can help localize the food system and better meet people's needs while supporting more marginalized farmers and producers. Yes. And just to think about the emissions that could be reduced just through food waste, eliminating food waste is significant. It's not really making changes, just like making sure that it's not wasted. And I love those programs like in San Francisco, the composting program, which I love to see rolled out in other cities and countries. And how is the Inflation Reduction Act working on the ground? It's over the year old now. Well, some of that is still playing out. There were some issues with the Inflation Reduction Act because there were some pretty major giveaways that happened. For example, in order to increase renewable energy production, it was also tied to increasing or and continuing to allow fossil fuel production on public land, which that's not going to solve the climate crisis. The only way that we can solve the climate crisis is to keep fossil fuels in the ground 
and just focus on that shift to renewable energy. So those are still things that we've been fighting against as it's rolling out, where there are still these big giveaways that are happening. For example, opening up the Arctic to drilling, despite that just keep coming back again and again, even though we all know how critical the Arctic is to wildlife and how much we need to stop opening new areas. So, and that's a really big piece of the Inflation Reduction Act that's still playing out. And the agriculture side, there was money that was earmarked for agriculture there. And we really want to see that money go toward marginalized producers or people who are really practicing these regenerative practices that they can demonstrate actually that are really approaching it in that holistic, truly sustainable way, as well as those who are focusing on plant-based food production. But as with a lot of things when it comes to policy, it's a big fight with the meat and dairy industry because they're lobbying hard to get those funds directed toward them. We are still seeing some of those funds going toward these multinational corporations that are producing meat and dairy. So from our perspective, the Inflation Reduction Act is not what it should have been. And we're still fighting to kind of to do the best that we can with what it is, right, to stop the bad projects that it's funding and to really try to push for that funding to go towards things that will ultimately help animals in the environment. So the thing that stuck out to me when I read your book was that I really like your approach on how we take care of animals, we take care of our planet. You've just expressed nothing short of that in this interview. So does your knowledge on advocacy in these areas extend to other realms of advocacy and how has that helped you? And it really just seems all the issues we need to advocate for are so connected through the theme of planet and our animals. Yeah, it's all completely interconnected. And one thing that I really proud of with our organization is that we're very outspoken about other social issues as well. We're very outspoken about racial justice, about LGBTQIA plus rights as well. We've spoken out at so many of these different moments when other organizations and others in society have been silent. And so much of that is because we can't have a world that is really just and sustainable and rich with biological diversity if we don't also have those same values for cultural diversity as well among humans. And we also see so many ways that these issues are intertwined. I mean, we see this a lot when we talk about environmental justice and climate justice, right? That the people who are most impacted by climate change are the same people who are most impacted by so many other of these ways from inequity in our healthcare system and wealth inequity and all of these other pieces. So we really see that the same forces that are creating these other types of injustices are also creating these environmental problems. And one area that this really is highlighted is when we talk about population, it's really about that connection between gender equity and family planning and reproductive justice and how that connects to environmental justice and our impact as a society on the planet and how those things are really interwoven together. So absolutely all of these issues are interconnected and we really need to have a good understanding and good allyship of these other movements and these other issues in order to effectively advocate for the planet. My name's Lynn Flores, and I'm an anthropology major going into my senior year at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. I spent time studying abroad this summer in Denmark, taking a class on sustainable food and agriculture. My knowledge of human cultures allows me to understand the impact people have on the environment. I wish to integrate what we know about the current world into more ethical food practices that benefit everyone. From my background, 
I especially love the insight that Stephanie Feldstein provided regarding the idea that we are all connected. It is very easy to feel hopeless about our current world situation as we are constantly degrading resources and hurting our fellow humans and animals. Personally, my college town has been attacked by floods from relentless rainstorms caused by climate change and devastated several local farms in the Connecticut River. If we don't take care of our planet, we cannot take care of ourselves, as Stephanie Feldstein reminds us. Animals share this planet as well and are affected by these actions, so who's to say their actions don't affect us? We need bees and butterflies to pollinate 80% of the world's flowering plants, livestock emit methane if fed the wrong diet, and dogs and other pets have been shown to improve happiness and health, but only if taken care of to be happy too. We cannot expect to move forward having there be no consequences for our actions on the environment. The place we build for ourselves to be surrounded in and its consequential circumstances determines the quality of our lives. Stephanie Feldstein not only acknowledges this concept, but is passionate about empowering others to interact with their world in ways that can result in the improvement of their circumstances. She explains in depth on how to get involved in making a difference while naturally integrating your own personal goals and needs without being destructive to our future. Personally, I found this interview incredibly inspiring, and I know Mia did too. It is incredibly uplifting to hear about how we can make a difference when all hope seems lost. It's Stephanie Feldstein brings confidence to our planet and those who live there for a safer and brighter future. I hope you've learned something new that you can apply to your everyday life, as I certainly have. And so that we can learn more, let's get back to the interview. And you educate for young and old. Just tell us a little bit about your forthcoming series, Take Action, Save Life on Earth. Yeah. So when I wrote The Animal Lover's Guide to Changing the World, it's a book that's written for adults, though there are a lot of young adults who picked up as well and really connected with it. But our ability to help animals can start so much younger. And kids really have this innate connection to nature and to other species. And there's no reason why kids can't start getting involved in understanding their impact on the world around them and really starting to make a difference. Kids can be really powerful advocates and activists. So the new series is called Take Action, Save Life on Earth. And there are six books in the series and each one covers a different group of animals. And it really helps give kids that background of their impact on the world and a lot of different actions that they can take to help fight the extinction crisis. You're educating people about the overpopulation, the gender equity, of course, all these things are interlinked. And another area of focus for you and your center is how we can move beyond capitalism towards solidarity economy. So tell us what you mean by that and what are some ways we can adapt it in our respective countries? Yeah, so capitalism is an inherently unsustainable system the way that it is being practiced now. It is an economy that is based on infinite growth, even though we live on a finite planet. So there is always going to be an end game for a growth-based economy. But of course, that's being largely ignored right now to the detriment of the world around us. You know, we really find that it's focused on growth and maximizing corporate profits, but at the expense of people and the planet. It exploits workers, it exploits animals, it exploits the environment. So we really need to reimagine how we approach our economy. And one of the models that we're looking at is a solidarity economy, which is really based on, on these values of justice, sustainability, and really valuing community involvement and understanding that there are different solutions in different communities, that it's not necessarily going to look the same everywhere in terms of how we move forward. And 
So this transition is really critical. One of the reasons that we see so much panic whenever there's, for example, a drop in birth rate is because capitalism demands more and more people. But a solidarity economy looks at people aren't just numbers, but in terms of what is the actual well-being of people and the planet. And I know that all sounds very vague and esoteric in a lot of ways, but what it looks like on the ground is we actually see the solidarity economy playing out in a number of different models. For example, if you have a co-op grocery store near you, right, that is owned by the staff members and that they are engaged in how that store is run rather than it just being coming from a top-down corporation. We also see around the world a lot of great examples of mutual aid, which is different ways that communities are able to help each other out in ways that are much more cooperative than just thinking about it in terms of a very top-down social services sort so of model. We see all of these different opportunities for the solidarity economy to be implemented. Another big one that we look at is shifting from all of these single-use products, the majority of which are made out of plastic, which of course creates a huge amount of pollution and comes from fossil fuels, and shifting away from that idea of single-use toward more of a reuse system. And that's something, again, that it takes a bit more of a community effort in terms of how we set up these systems. But in the end, it's things that reduces so much waste and so much harm and actually benefits the community in a number of different ways. Can you elaborate on some of those strategies and how they can help people determine what they're really comfortable with and what they themselves can do and what they have the power to do? Absolutely. I mean, this sort of falls into the conversation of the relationship between individual action. And I just want to underscore that individual action is really important for a number of reasons. We absolutely need there to be big systems change coming from governments and corporations, but there's a lot of power in our individual actions. And for a lot of people, that's where they start because when you get to choose what kind of world you want to support and live in, and it helps you connect with the issues you care about and align your life with your values. And then from there, that kind of builds into your actions, inspiring people around you. And this is how we begin to change cultural norms and build power. And then here's that get into some of that advocacy, right? That building power, whether or not we're directly trying to advocate for change, as we make changes in our old lives and those around us make changes, it starts to influence the market and political will as well. An issue is not going to be addressed by politicians if they think nobody cares about it and if nobody's talking about it. So when we make these changes in our lives, it helps to elevate those issues. And then lastly, to get to your point about advocacy and how to get involved with that and where to find your place, is that for many people, that individual action becomes that starting point for community action. And it's a really good way to help you find people around you who care about the same things that you do. And I think for a lot of people who are new to advocacy, they don't necessarily know what it looks like, right? You see very high profile people who are speaking to the UN or who are leading these big protests. And if you've never done anything like that before, that can be really intimidating. But a lot of it starts with community groups in your area and starting to learn, like, what are the first things that you can do? So a big part of it is making that individual connection and valuing that. And then from there, really asking yourself, what are the things that you're comfortable with? And just being open to learning from others and seeing what the different possibilities are for getting involved in as an advocate. So something else you talked about was cultural norms. And that just set off a light bulb in my head. These ideas that exist that are harmful and fundamentally not sustainable in the long run are essentially created by culture. Do you have any explanations, theories of, as to why this is? I think that as human societies, we've always had cultural norms. It's part of how we connect with each other 
And that's through these kind of shared expectations and this shared view of how we live our lives. And then now we also see that these cultural norms are also then reinforced by our societal structure. To go back to, to dietary choices, for example, the cultural norm has very much been that meat is at the center of every meal. Having more plant-based options on menus really normalizes that. Even looking at places like big coffee chains now that are offering several different kinds of alternative milks and even featuring beverages where alternative milk is the default in it, that helps to normalize alternative milk. And that helps change that cultural norm. For example, for a while, the cultural norm was bottled water, right? Everybody just assumed this was the healthy thing and it was so convenient and people had their single use water bottles everywhere. And of course, that was being promoted by really smart but unfortunate marketing by the beverage companies that were promoting them. But now you're starting to see a shift where there are more reusable water bottle stations that make it easy for people to do it. And so that norm is shifting toward valuing those reusable bottles. And those are the kinds of things that happen in small ways and in big ways throughout our society, we can start to shift these norms toward sustainability. Yeah, we've just been brainwashed into believing into, on this issue of capitalism that we can have perpetual growth without growth for growth's sake, but not thinking about the quality of life. These numbers don't equate to having a better quality of life necessarily or health outcomes and different things like that. So I'm very intrigued by the universal guaranteed income and these kind of things that allow you to have different kinds of growth and have this more collectivist approach where it's not a zero-sum game where I win, you lose, or you win, I lose. Yeah, a lot of the problems that we have and where we see these panics happening whenever capitalism is threatened is you have to remember that this is a collective choice in terms of how we've decided to measure success. And that is something that can change. And as you said, instead of measuring success on these absurd corporate profits, on just growth, on this really inequitable wealth, rethinking, well, what if we measured success based on happiness and based on the health of communities, based on wealth equity, instead of just how rich are the richest people in the world? And I think that shifting the way that we start to measure these things is, is a really key step in, in rethinking how our economy works. And you've been bold and fun in some of your campaigns as well, like your extinction off your plate campaign or your endangered species condoms. Just tell us how, how you use that as a tool for educating and spreading awareness. Sure. The endangered species condoms are a really fun project that's been around for more than 10 years now. And what it is, these condom packages that have colorful wildlife artwork on them. And they say things like, wrap with care, save the polar bear, or before it gets any hotter, think of the sea otter. And it's really eye-catching and has these kind of funny things on them. And it works as a great icebreaker for people because a lot of people don't want to talk about population. It's a really controversial topic. There are a lot of injustices that have happened and continue to happen in the name of curbing population. But the way that we work on it, and frankly, that most other people who are concerned about population work on it is just very centered in human rights. It's all about making sure that everybody has the ability to choose if and when they want to have children and how many children they want to have. So it's really all about empowering that choice and making sure people have access to reproductive health care and gender equity and education and all of these other interconnected factors. I do realize that population has been growing really quickly in my lifetime and that human population does put pressure on other species. And 
they started asking questions about like, okay, how do we solve that? Because that's a big gap for a lot of people who they may recognize it, but then they're really uncomfortable because they're like, well, what does it mean to address population? And so it's really empowering for people to realize it's all about advancing human rights and protecting wildlife while also protecting people and their reproductive freedom. I went to a sustainability workshop a couple of weeks ago. And the main thing I talked about is when people think about sustainability is like efficiency. Like what is our output? Like how many plastic bottles can we save from being trashed? How many cows can we save from being unsustainably harvested? But looking at the numbers isn't sustainable in the long run. We should be looking at effectiveness. So how does that tie into your views and like what you advocate for? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because just equating sustainability with efficiency, it's a dangerous proposition because efficiency is essentially what got us factory farms, right? It is a very efficient way to produce a lot of calories, but it comes with all of these other consequences for animals, for workers, for the environment. And so efficiency is a very narrow view. And I find a lot of times a very corporate view, right? Because they are just looking for like, what are those numbers get me to the bottom line as opposed to looking at that holistic picture of what is the actual impact of this. So I think when we look at sustainability, we need to look at it in that context of what is going to actually benefit wildlife, the environment, and people as well. Like how are all of these different parties going to benefit from this? And a lot of times what that means is not only thinking about it in terms of effectiveness, but also looking as far upstream in the process as we can. So with plastic water bottles, it's not a matter of like how many of them get recycled. There are a lot of problems with plastic recycling. That's a whole other issue. And recycling requires some of its own energy and processes. But the solution is actually to look upstream to how do we prevent those single-use plastic water bottles from ever existing in the first place. And so true sustainability isn't, well, we captured four of the bottles and recycled them into more bottles. But it's how did we stop them from being made and stick to a reuse system where people are having bottles that are made from better materials to start with and are actually just washing and reusing them instead of producing more and more stuff. And that's a really big piece of it. And I know we talked a little bit about food waste earlier as well, which you're absolutely right. Food waste is a big low-hanging fruit for how we can address some problems with the food system. But a lot of times with food waste, we see companies focusing only on the very end and saying like, oh, well, it's fine if we have all this extra food because we can just donate it. And well, donating food doesn't actually solve the impact of food waste and it doesn't solve the underlying causes of hunger either. What we actually need to look at with food waste is again, going all the way upstream. How do we prevent it happening in the first place? Because by the time you are donating food or even composting food, all of the land and water and habitat loss and pesticide use, all of that already happened to create this food with, that was never eaten. Here we need to look all the way upstream for sustainability and think about how do we start from the very beginning of this process from that design phase to change the way that we're doing things. What I love about focusing on the welfare animal agriculture and all the related activities is that for people talking about efficiency, it buys us time. And that because we do have all those other technologies that will help us get to net zero, but it's about implementation and just 
getting that little bit of extra time helps us on so many levels. And then I feel like we can get to the net zero by 2050. Dream fantasy that we all go to a plant-based diet overnight. But what would that mean in terms of reductions of emissions in real climate terms? Yeah, I think that's something that's really important because the industry, the meat and dairy industry, always say, oh, if everybody went vegan tomorrow, all of these jobs would collapse. I mean, have all these other problems with the industry, all of these byproducts of the industry would disappear and it would have this ripple effect throughout society. But the reality is it's not going to be something that happens overnight, but it's something that we need to start the process of making it happen now. And I think that a lot of times when we're talking about this, we talk about food and animal agriculture you know, people are increasingly talking about it in terms of a just transition. And we've heard about the just transition a lot when it comes to energy, right? And that's things like retraining coal workers to be able to work on renewable energy technology and that sort of thing. So we're not seeing jobs and communities and individuals being sacrificed on this path to sustainability. And we're looking at the same exact thing when we look at that transition from animal agriculture as well is how do we think about it in terms of that just transition? Like, what do we do to help farmers transition from, from raising meat and dairy towards these more diversified integrated systems or toward more sustainable crops? How do we think about how that integrates into the food that's offered and the food that people eat and the food that's being supported by subsidies? And how do we start to transition that in a way that isn't just about that bottom line of environmental sustainability, but it's also looking at the impact on workers, the impact on indigenous people, the impact on different food cultures and how that is brought along and it's integral to the transition rather than something that's just left behind in some kind of rapid overnight change. I mean, I think if everyone really were exposed to the way factory farming of animals, it's a horror story. Education is vital just to understand that. So how did you become passionate about these topics? And what's your own journey as an educator and an activist? And who are important teachers for you? Well, I have always been really passionate about animals, including wildlife. And so I knew that in order to protect the animals that I loved, I also had to protect the places where they live. And I also had to think about what my impact was on their lives. And so I think from a very young age, when I would see things like images of deforestation, and that was always so devastating to me to see that instantaneous loss of so much life of these rich ecosystems and so many of which were older than humans are, and just to see it wiped away oftentimes just for corporate greed, not even to meet human needs, but just for corporate profit. It was always something that was really devastating to me. Where I grew up, the expectation was that you might grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, or if you loved animals, you might be a veterinarian. And those are all wonderful careers. But it didn't occur to me that you could also make a living by fighting for these issues that you're passionate about. And then when I went to college, I started to work part-time at the local animal shelter and I got more involved in environmental clubs. And I really started to see the range of ways that you could help animals. And my major in college was in creative writing. And I started to realize how valuable that is to the movement. There was a huge difference between when I see like these really powerful campaigns or writing that really helped me and others connect with the issues. That came from somebody who had that skill with writing and communicating. And we absolutely need all of the scientists and the attorneys and everybody else in our movement. But we also need the people who are making those connections for other people to understand and for politicians to understand, for young activists to understand. 
And for me, one of my early influences, who I always loved and still love was always Jane Goodall. She really broke so many barriers, not just being a woman in her field, but in communicating science in a way that people could really connect with. Before Jane, there were so many scientists doing really great field work to understand human impact on wildlife, but they kept it very distant. Like they didn't acknowledge that connection we have with animals and the individuality of animals and, and that love that we have for other species. And Jane was really able to embody all of that along with the science in a way that really revolutionized the way that people could connect with wildlife. And so that was somebody who had a huge influence on me and still does and who I just feel really changed the way we think about how we can communicate about these issues. Yes. And I think that you do it as well. We have to connect our heads with our hearts and to for us to care about the science. And so thank you, Stephanie Feldstein, for your dedication to making this world a better place for all living beings, for your important contributions to sustainability and environmental education and showing us how we can take action and save life on earth. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for this wonderful discussion. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lynn Flores with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were David Phillips and Lynn Flores. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.